Exile is a complicated place for the people of God. Moral norms at odds with holiness, power used in dishonorable ways, systems unsympathetic to the plight of the religious. A landscape riddled with obstacles forces a jagged path for those who'd navigated. This is a story about whether faith is compatible with exile, about complexity and the choices we're faced with in a far kingdom, layered options dappled with light and shadow. It's a story about how sometimes the choices before us feel fraught with inevitable compromise, and how sometimes, at the same time, the right thing emerges. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. The palace of Xerxes looms over the Persian capital of Susa, massive and opulent. Carved stone and intricate tapestries and shining gold, sculpted columns flanking great halls, dental molding zigzagging its way along the pin-straight rooflines, vast rectangle walls rising from the earth, standing in sharp contrast to the undulating landscape, a promise of order authority, power. Esther has never seen it from the inside. None of the girls in the group have, but they will today. Esther walks briskly, trying to keep pace with her military escort while drinking in the incredible surroundings. The centerpiece of an empire future generations will say is the most powerful ever to have existed. For a moment, she almost forgets why she's visiting the palace. She looks around at the other girls in the group, all of them in their mid-teens, like her, all of them nervous, like her, all of them beautiful, none of them married, and only one of them ever will be. Like Pied Pipers, King Xerxes' soldiers have traveled from province to province, gathering virgins to audition for the role of queen. Twelve months of beauty treatments, followed by one night with the king, and then, for his favorite, the position of a lifetime. For the rest, every single other girl the king chooses to sleep with and pass on the harem. Their virginity stolen, there will be no marriage for them not to Xerxes, nor to anyone else. Instead, they will be kept in the house of the women to live out the rest of their lives in luxurious desolation as the discarded property of the king. What would Esther's parents think of this? Would they mourn and wail, knowing their precious Hebrew daughter was to be sampled by a pagan man? Would they assure her that Yahweh was with her no matter what? 
Would they tell her that there are worse fates for a young woman and that she should be grateful for this chance to be the queen of the kingdom that conquered the kingdom that conquered theirs? Or would they simply sit and weep with her, wondering why this had been allowed to happen? What oil could possibly be pressed out of a bitter fruit like this? She has no idea what they would think. Because Esther's parents are dead. Years ago, when they died, her older cousin Mordecai took her in, raised her as his own. She knows what Mordecai thinks about this abduction. He'd stepped in and taken control when Esther needed him, worked hard to protect her all these years, and now there's nothing he can do. I'll visit you every day, he insisted. I'm one of the king's officials. I have access to the palace. I'll, I'll check on you and make sure they're treating you well and... And what if they're not? There was no good answer to that. They both knew it. And so Esther hadn't asked. The next year passes slowly. Esther's days are filled with a strict schedule of treatments, baths, skin and nail and hair regimens, oils and perfumes, all the luxurious cosmetics Persia is known for, Cephadab to brighten her face and Sorma to line her eyes and Vasma to darken her eyebrows and Zarak to lighten her hair. Her diet is closely monitored. Her clothing and jewelry are chosen for her. She's told how to sit and when to move and how not to speak like a puppet. But every day, without fail, Mordecai checks on her. They're able to meet up for a few moments in the courtyard of the House of the Women, where Esther tells him regularly about everything, the beautification treatments, about the food she's being fed, about the other girls, her fellow prisoners, her competition. She tells him perhaps about how, compelled to be here, she's decided it's better to try and win, better to be a wife instead of a concubine, even the wife of a pagan man. Maybe they wrestle with that choice. Certainly she talks about Haggai, the eunuch in charge of them. He's a decent man, and he seems to have taken a liking to Esther. He's given her treatments the other young women don't receive, provided her with even better food than the rest of the group. He's even, Esther tells Mordecai one day, assigned her seven female servants from the palace and transferred her to the harem's best quarters. It's strange. She seems to gain favor in the eyes of everyone she meets, as if there's been a spell cast on her. Yes, says Mordecai, but have you done as I said? Have you told them? No, Esther assures him. No one knows I'm a Jew. Generations will wonder why exactly Mordecai insists on this secrecy. It's been well over a hundred years now since the Babylonian army swept into Jerusalem, burned the city, and carried off tens of thousands of Israelites to Babylon. Since then, Persia conquered the Babylonians and allowed the Jews to return home. Many went, and many did not. Things had changed under Persian rule. Jewish people are integrated into society, allowed to hold position, own land, 
Xerxes' father, Darius the Great, was well served by an openly Jewish prophet named Daniel. Persia, for so many of the Hebrews, has become home. The original refugees had children in this place. Those children had children. And those children, Mordecai's generation, don't want to leave. But there will always be those, it seems, who propagate anti-Semitism. Perhaps Mordecai, well-connected as he is, has sensed it, simmering below the surface even here, even now. Perhaps the vow of secrecy he makes his cousin take is one last grasping attempt from this guardian to keep young Esther safe. If Mordecai feels the Jews are in danger, he's not wrong. Esther's pulse races as she makes her way through the corridors of the palace toward the king's quarters. For 12 months, this day has hung before her, a fixed point on the horizon, her path headed inexorably toward it. Even in the dimly lit halls, Esther's beauty is arresting. The flickering lamplight casts unsteady shadows, the shape of Esther's perfect figure dancing on the stone walls. The simplicity of her dress almost belies the occasion. Every candidate is allowed to select whatever clothing, oils, necklaces, bracelets, perfume they want for their evening with the king to make an impression and, presumably, to keep after their encounter as a sort of consolation prize. And so some have taken full advantage, loading themselves down with an absurd amount of finery. Esther, though, had no interest in cashing in on short-term loot. Besides, what does she know about the king's taste? She asked Haggai for his counsel. Honored, he gave her the full extent of his well-informed opinion, and Esther followed it to the letter. Finally, they reach the door of the royal chambers. Her attendant knocks, the king beckons, and Esther enters. Xerxes stands beside the bed, expectant, entitled. He wears his 42 years well. He's the kind of king who rides with his troops into battle, and his build suggests as much. But a recent spectacularly failed military campaign left him rattled, turning to wine as an old empathetic friend, and this last season has him looking tired, unsure. Two, it's been four years since he's been without a queen, four years since he had his wife dispensed with for disobeying her king, and Xerxes looks lonely. As Esther walks in, the room fills with the scent of myrrh, rich, dark, faintly sweet, like molasses, damp earth. It smells of the woods Xerxes played in as a boy. He motions for her to approach, and as he does, his eyes rest for the first time on Esther's face. Her eyes flashing and alive, her cheekbones the line of her jaw, her ample lips the color of a sunset sky, her hair cascading around her temples and neck like black water. 
Xerxes has never seen her equal. The king takes her, has her. Esther's body and mind are a cacophony of feelings and emotions, anger and pain and pretense and disgust and conflict and shame and hunger and despair. Afterward, does Esther cry? And does Xerxes, who brought her to tears, see her for a moment? Does he realize there in that room with her what he's done, what he's doing? Does he hold her while she weeps? This much is certain. Something about Esther takes Xerxes captive. No one but Esther and Xerxes will know all that happens that night. But it will be rightly remembered that the king, with the wealth of concubines at his disposal, is not simply looking for a favorite bedmate in all of this, but a queen, a companion, a confidant, perhaps, a constant presence, someone to adore, to give gifts. And in Esther, he finds all he is searching for and more. She's different somehow in ways Xerxes can't quite work out. But he's drawn to her, enchanted by her, and happy to be so. As soon as his time with her is complete, Xerxes calls off the contest and crowns Esther queen. He throws an enormous banquet, inviting all of his officials, the entire royal staff. He's so elated, in fact, that he suspends tax payments in every province of his immense kingdom. It's like he was destined for her. Finally, he has found his queen. Not long after Esther's ascension to the throne, Xerxes has even more reason to be grateful for his new queen. One day, while conducting business at the king's gate, Esther's cousin Mordecai overhears a plot to assassinate King Xerxes. Mordecai immediately reports the information to Esther, who in turn tells the king what Mordecai discovered. In short order, an investigation is conducted, the conspirators are executed, and the episode is recorded in the official historical record. Opportunities like these are not to be missed. If you want to survive in the court of Xerxes, you need the favor of Xerxes. But Esther isn't the only one who's learned this. Over the next few years, one of Xerxes' officials, a man named Haman, rises through the ranks and eventually gets himself promoted to the highest position in the kingdom. The king even commands that the entire royal staff bow down and pay homage to Haman when he passes. Haman loves this. It's only right, though. After all, he's earned his position, earned this favor, earned their obeisance. When they bow, it makes him feel like he matters, like he's better than them, like he's a god. But there is one person who refuses to bow to Haman. Haman walks through a bustling palace courtyard one day, and as the officials and staff kneel in his wake, one man does not. Mordecai, the Jew. 
In the hubbub, though, Haman fails to notice. Afterwards, some of the other officials ask Mordecai, Why are you disobeying the king's command? I am a Jew, Mordecai responds. The other officials wouldn't understand, but Haman is a descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites, perennial enemies of the Jews. Evidently, Mordecai has gathered that Haman has remained true to this historic animosity, and so Mordecai cannot stomach the idea of bowing to him. And he doesn't. Again and again, Mordecai refuses to bow before Haman along with the others. And amazingly, Haman misses this insubordination day after day. Finally, though, some of the other officials go to Haman. It's not fair that they have to bow to this insecure megalomaniac, and Mordecai doesn't. It's true. He hasn't bowed to you a single time, they insist. Apparently, it's because he's a Jew. Infuriated, Haman decides this Hebrew must pay for his insolence. Now, why just this Hebrew? They all act so differently, like they've been chosen, like they don't remember how they got here. Eating their own meat and refusing to do business on certain days and worshipping their solitary, jealous God. All of them should be killed, every Jew, from one end of the kingdom to the next. A purge. But how to convince the king? Just as the budding tulips signal the arrival of spring, Haman requests an audience with King Xerxes. There is one ethnic group, he says, scattered throughout the people in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction. He lets his request sink in. And if he detects hesitation in Xerxes' eyes, Haman follows it with this. Do this, and I will pay 375 tons of silver for deposit in the royal treasury. In all likelihood, he imagines plundering every bit of it from the people he kills. Xerxes pauses to reflect. How could such a separate, recalcitrant people exist within Persia right under his nose? No one defies the king. Who are these people? He removes his signet ring and gives it to Haman. Do as you see fit and keep the money. Right away, Haman has the royal scribes draft an edict to be sent to every province in every conceivable language in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the royal ring. A little less than a year from now, the officials in every province are to destroy, kill, annihilate every Jewish person they can find, young, old, men, women, children, and take all of their possessions as plunder. They'll need to be efficient because they'll have one day to do it, the 13th of Adar. How did Naaman choose the day? 
he just rolled the dice. The Purim, as they're called. The future of an entire people riding on lots cast for the gods to control. Unfortunately, that resulted in quite a bit of time between now and the cleansing. But no matter. An edict in the king's name cannot be changed. No strategy, no ally, nothing can change the Jews' fate now. Watching the scribes copy down his law makes Haman feel important, powerful, like he's a god. Oh, and as an act of impressive cruelty and bravado, Haman doesn't just send his murderous edict to the officials in each province of Persia, a secret to be carried out in surprise when the time comes. Instead, he sends the edict to the people themselves. Hundreds and hundreds of copies are distributed throughout the kingdom, read aloud in town squares and marketplaces, city gates and public theaters. Let the Jews dread their fate for the next 11 months. Haman can't wait for Mordecai to hear the news. His whole homeless nation wiped out with the stroke of Haman's pen. That will teach him to trifle with a god. Once Haman has put everything in motion, he sits down with Xerxes for some drinks to celebrate his enemy's impending demise and to further ingratiate himself to the king. Everything's going so well. When the announcement is read, on the day of Passover, no less, the city of Susa, all of Persia, erupts in confusion. An entire race? Citizens of the Persian Empire? Multi-generational residents of the kingdom? Women and children and grandparents? To be annihilated? Jews everywhere wail in disbelief, mothers clutching their children, husbands holding their wives, kids asking their fathers what this means, if it's true, why it's happening. The devastated children of Israel litter the landscape of Persia, lumps of sackcloth lying in piles of ash. When Mordecai hears the edict and learns why it was issued, he tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth of his own, and stumbles out into the middle of the city, crying aloud and weeping bitter tears. From the Balkans in the west, to the Indus Valley in the east, the Black Sea in the north, to the Nile Delta in the south, the fervent prayers of Hebrew men, women, and children rise toward the sky. Meanwhile, Esther has no idea queen for five years now, she's somewhat insulated from the lives of her people. Acclimated to the palace finery, adept at the meticulous dance required to protect her position and maintain the king's favor. But her blissful ignorance doesn't last long. As soon as her servants hear the news, they rush to tell her about what's happening, and when they do, Esther is overcome. Not with outrage, or with compassion for the thousands of doomed Hebrews spread across her kingdom, she's overcome with fear. This edict 
would apply to her as well. If anybody were to find out that she... But no, no one knows. Just Mordecai, and, and he's... He's in danger too. But if they both can keep their identities a secret... No, that's how all of this started. Haman knows about Mordecai. But who's to say Haman got good information? If, if Mordecai could distance himself from the Jews, make the king believe that Haman had gotten it wrong, make him believe that Mordecai didn't care whether the Jews died or not. Mordecai is out there in the middle of the city in sackcloth and ashes with the rest of the Jews, Esther's servants tell her. No, that will ruin everything. Everyone will know that he's, and he's her cousin. It won't take them long to figure out that she's... Take these clothes to Mordecai, she tells Hathak, a trusted servant. Tell him I want him, I command him, to change out of his sackcloth and into them immediately and find out what he's doing and why. Go. Hathak rushes to find Mordecai. He exits the palace to find the city roiling in chaos everyone out in the streets talking and shouting, Jewish citizens everywhere wailing, pleading with their neighbors for protection for them to hide their children, maybe. Eventually, Hathok finds the grieving Mordecai in the city's square, barely recognizable in his burlap, ash dusting his head, his cheeks and forehead smeared with black, his eyes bloodshot from the tears. Mordecai looks up to see Esther's servant, grabs him with hopeful desperation and tells him everything that's happened, the plot, the money offered by Haman, the date of the scheduled slaughter, all of it. The queen must be told, he says. When she finds out, she'll do something. She can do something. He has no idea that she already knows. She wants you to take off your sackcloth. Look, she sent clothes for you, Hathok says, handing them to him. What? No, no, didn't you hear me? Here, here is a copy of the decree. It's just been issued in Susa, ordering our destruction. It's real. Show it to Esther. Tell her she has to approach the king and implore his favor. She has to plead with him personally for these people, for her people. Hathok returns to the queen and tells her everything Mordecai said. I can't, Esther says to Hathok. Tell him he knows the rule. No one, not even the queen, can approach the king who hasn't been summoned. Unless the king pardons that person by extending his golden scepter, the penalty is death. What you need to survive in Xerxes' palace is Xerxes' favor. He must call for you and... and he has not called for me in 30 days. No one defies the king. I could die. Hathok relays the message to Mordecai. Mordecai's eyebrows lower, his head cocked, storms in his eyes. Tell the queen this, Mordecai says. Do not think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. If you keep silent right now, deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your father's family will be destroyed. He speaks like someone who knows something, as if there's some maestro conducting world events, moving things inexorably along some path, 
If Hathok turns to go, Mordecai stops him. One more thing. Tell Esther. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Hathok leaves the frenzied city and makes his way back to the queen's palatial chambers. Esther beckons for him to enter. Surely Mordecai listened to reason and understood after her last message. Surely Hathok is about to tell her that Mordecai apologized, said he was sorry for putting her in the middle of all this, for suggesting that she endanger her very life out herself as though she could do anything to stop the king of Persia. But there is no apology. Hathok rehearses Mordecai's potent message. Queen Esther listens, struck. It has been a long time since anyone has spoken to her like this. As Hathok speaks, Esther can hear every word in the voice of her cousin. It's exactly the kind of thing he would say, isn't it? Words like solid stones, words you could build something on. She finds herself swept back to the time when Mordecai was her guardian, when he took her in as a daughter after her parents died, protected her when she was vulnerable, saved her. How old had he been? Barely in his 20s, maybe. The same age she is now. How had he mustered the strength, the courage, to do something like that? Where does bravery come from when you need more of it than you have? Tell Mordecai, says the orphan queen finally, to go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. My servants and I will fast as well. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. Hey, Justin here. So this, you should know, was part one of the Maestro, the Orphan Queen, and the Guardian. Uh, Esther's and Mordecai's story is so great that I could not bear to barrel through it, so I decided to devote two episodes to it. The whole story continues to ramp up to an ending that is somehow both gruesome and redemptive, uh, very Old Testament. If you want to hear the conclusion, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss part two in episode eight when it drops. 
Now, before I go, I want to let you know something exciting. Beginning with the release of episode eight on March 29th, you will have the chance to become a patron of Holy Ghost Stories. By way of the Patreon platform, you will be able to partner with me financially so that I can continue creating this podcast. I've got lots of really great stuff planned for those of you who believe in this show enough to come alongside me this way, and I will tell you all about that when the next episode releases. For now, I'm praying that you'll seriously consider jumping in here in a couple of weeks and help me tell stories that have the power to thrill us and delight us and change us and show us who our Father is. Till then. <laughs>